this is Sarah, and I wanted to just leave a little message right here at the top of the episode. First to say that at the very end, we do get cut off while we're saying our goodbyes, but I want to acknowledge that this is a conversation between two very close friends. I am so grateful to Molly for always being my sounding board, and Our intent in this episode is to give an audience, which we have determined is largely made up of white women, an opportunity to listen in on a conversation that we really hope you're having with your friends. We talked last week to two members of the Defund the WPD organization, and I was left with some frustrations that Molly has helped me work through as friends do. And we've been doing this podcast, I can't even believe it, but for two years, this marks our, I think, 81st episode, which is insane to me. We are particularly grateful to Worcester Arts Council, who has been very supportive to us in this second year of our existence. And we hope you'll take their surveys so that you can tell them what to prioritize in their funding for next year. We'll put the link in our bio. One of the things that left me feeling unsatisfied after our conversation with defund WPD was that there wasn't a concrete actionable plan in place. And Molly was able to remind me that that organization is hyper-local and less than a month old. And it's not like in Los Angeles where they just brought forth a people's budget. They're not there yet in their organizing efforts and that's okay. And whether you agree with their platform or not, and I think you'll find in the next 18 minutes or so that I'm still feeling tremendously undecided, I've been forced to ask myself a couple of questions. First is, what makes the people in my community feel safe? And the other question is, how would instituting a system of reform within the existing framework of policing continue to uphold negative aspects of the status quo. Those are both hypotheticals in a sense, but they're in the back of my mind now in every conversation that I have about this stuff. Um, I've also started reading a lot more about bail funds and the means by which they're able to replenish themselves and begin to change the community perception of what makes our neighborhoods feel safe. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation as friends as we continue to grapple with the realities of policing in this country. Keeping in mind that this is a feminist podcast, we try to discuss this very nuanced and complicated topic through the lens of uplifting women's voices. I'm Molly O'Connor. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Hi, Sarah. Molly, I, hi. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like our conversation last week with Defund WPD left me with more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. And I like walked away not feeling great about the conversation yeah and I just kept rehashing it over and over and over and like my husband and my friends were like why are you so hung up on this but I was just left very unsatisfied yeah I I could um see that I think it was I think that part of what I was just thinking about this and I think that part of it was almost like it was because we know each other so well, 
and like we know how to speak to each other it was almost like it became easier for the two of us to interact maybe you know and I think you're right. And I think I kind of misread that. I was frustrated yeah. when we got off the phone. <laughs> I was like, they were so unprepared. I gave them the questions 48 hours in advance and they didn't like have concrete information for me. And I said that on a group chat to some mm-hmm. of my friends who then listened to the episode. And one of them said, well, Sarah, like, maybe they just decided to disengage. Like they felt like you were kind of gaslighting them and trying to get into this debate and like they didn't engage. And that can be a form of activism as well. And I hadn't thought of that, that maybe like my being dismissive or um, persistent in Mm -hmm. talking about the good individual cops that I know, just turn them off. It, It is possible. And I hadn't even thought of that either. Like I was kind of just rolling with it as I saw fit. And I think that is a really interesting point. And I, but I think that that's also just our ability to have that rapport. I think that those things are related. Definitely. I know you. So like, I know that you have, that you come to conversations like that in good faith and like, they don't know us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very well could have read the situation differently, which I think is like fair. One piece of feedback that I got was, who is your audience? Because I said, is it helpful that I'm trying to demonstrate growth on our podcast, in my Mm -hmm. writing? Like, I want to show people that it's okay to change your mind and develop your ideas and educate yourself. And I'm trying to do that publicly as a model. And a friend of mine said, well, it depends who your audience is. Like, if you're speaking to black organizers who are already shining a light on the remnants of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and policing, well then no, like that's not the appropriate way to approach it. But Mm -hmm. if you are trying to appeal to other white women, well then that's probably a good approach. So you just have to decide who your audience is. So I don't know, Molly, who's our audience? Like I know we really try to elevate women's voices and be a feminist podcast. Yep. Absolutely. I think that that's a great point. And that's something that our friend Love talked about. I remember a few weeks ago, she was sort of addressing some weight, like public activism, you know, do's and don'ts, and especially on the internet or social media. And I think that is a great point is like, I do think that our audience is probably is primarily white women. Uh, We know that it is at least from like our Instagram following at least 65 or 70% women. Yeah, I checked yesterday. It's 70%. Yeah, I would venture a guess that it's mostly white people. Um, so I do think that in like this particular case, that's true, right? It's it is, and especially like if we're talking to each other with the focus of like holding ourselves and one another accountable for this stuff, mm-hmm. then yeah, I think it's like definitely appropriate to to grow publicly or to to change your mind or to say like, oh, I learned new, like you know, this is there's like a new meme that's like normalize learning new information and like changing your mind about it you know if we were having a conversation just like your friend said like with a person who's trying to tell us and our audience those things and like no absolutely we should decenter ourselves in that conversation but i do think that it's appropriate 
in this situation, you know? So I do want to talk about the idea of centering whiteness because that's something I think when we do get into feminist conversations is so natural for me. I'm always thinking of myself as the main character. And when we talk about (laughs) racism and how it's worked its way into white feminism, I am not the main character, you know? And that's, that's really important. So one of the... One of the individuals that my friend Gina Pearl Fletcher, who's going to come on the show in a few weeks to talk about student activism hmm. and architecture and design. Yeah. <laughs> she had led me to the account on Instagram of Sonia Renee Taylor, who talks a lot about divesting from whiteness by like getting out of this either or thinking. Like we're so into thinking of absolutes, but this stuff is really messy. And so. The point at which I got turned off last week was when all of a sudden I felt like it had turned to an extreme, right? Like they said, there are Mm -hmm. no good cops. And that all of a sudden I just like got on the defensive. Uh, Yeah, I could feel that. Like I could like feel you. I was like, oh no. And I was like, I was like, I have to, I have to save this. I felt like I needed to like salvage it. (laughs) But the thing is, my intent is important. I think people's intent is always important, right? Like if that comment hurt anyone or it felt like I was discounting or ignoring the centuries of police violence and the roots of slave catching that led to our current systems that are very broken, like that was not my intent, right? So maybe I spoke right, but too it, soon. It is, yeah, and we that is another conversation that's really coming up now too is the intent versus impact. So it's like, yeah, like I know you, like I said really well, it's like you're not coming into that with a bad – like in bad faith. But like you said, when it comes off that way, it's very hard to reconcile it, I guess, right? Yeah, the conversation never came back after that point. Or it, that's how it, it sure. felt to me. But I think I had also at some point said, of course I'm in support of Black Lives Matter, right? And I was like, of course I want to demand justice for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, but Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how I feel about defunding the police. And I think those two things are inherently linked. But I want to hear your thoughts on this, Molly, because, like, I I mean, I can, I don't know, identify as a Catholic and be a gay person or identify as a Catholic and be pro-choice, even though those are things that the Catholic Church has spoken out against, like, can you be a supporter of Black Lives Matter and maybe not want to abolish the police? That is a very that is a really good question and it's also a hard question for me to answer and I'll tell you why and it's because like I am a white woman, right? Mm-hmm. Late in college for me is when a lot of the occupy stuff was going on. Mm-hmm. Um and that was a big turning point for me. I would stay up late on like the scanners and on the on the live videos of, like, the camps being, you know, tormented and torn apart. And that was a big turning point for me in seeing that and then getting into a lot of the readings of people like I, like, of, like, someone like Angela Davis. So, like, I am a studier of this and a follower of it. And so, like, my answer to that question is yes. For me personally, they are inextricably linked in a way from, like, from my interpretation of, of what the framework of abolition is, then those things are absolutely inextricably linked. Um, and, but and again, like I'm not an expert right. on this. I have like I have read experts. I have listened to them, and and so like for me, these things are absolutely 
hand in hand. Because I guess I had a hard time. At one point they said it means reallocating that money. And at another point it meant like dismantling the police. And I guess if it's a cry for lawlessness, I'm not behind that, right? That would cause chaos. But it's not. That's the thing. But that's what it seems like. But if it's a cause for a specialized response team or more social workers or investing in education and healthcare, well, then, of course, that's what I want, you know? Right. But I also don't think that that can just happen tomorrow. There's going to need to be a transition oh, plan not. in place. And that's why I was so disappointed that there, there wasn't a plan. But that's the thing that is not a new idea. It's new to certain communities. It's new to some people. But it's not something that like has not been extensively thought out and researched you know, by the people who are the experts on it. And I think like in our case, like super, like hyper locally, like, yeah, it's definitely in that kind of stage, but it's not something that like last week someone was like, I think we should dismantle the police. Um, Abolition of the prison industrial complex. It goes also beyond just like specialized response and social workers. It goes to, and this is why, like you say, it is not going to get done tomorrow, but it goes to reimagining like what society can even look like um so it is it's a huge undertaking it is a it is an absolutely radical idea that is very difficult i think to wrap your head around i like i totally i get that you know what i mean like i empathize when people are like what because <laughs> it's 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 big but it goes to the idea that like how can we make these things obsolete i think also we can separate police response from like detective work and i do want to redirect the conversation a little because i think it's important that we do stick with our mission which is to be a feminist podcast that elevates women's voices so i guess i i want to look at it through that lens too and one of the writers that gina also had introduced me to is rachel elizabeth cargill and she wrote mm-hmm. uh, a piece that was really popular in Harper's Bazaar a couple of years ago called When Feminism is White Supremacy in Heels. And she talks yep. about how white women have a tendency to like love and light it away, which is kind of like that color blindness argument. Mm-hmm. And it's counterproductive and it's focused on our feelings, the white woman's feelings. And so that's my personal right. goal is to like just – Make room for black joy. <laughs> that was another thing yeah. um, that I was reading a lot about. And understand that, like, my feelings are insignificant in many ways when it comes to this particular topic. And all I can do is educate myself. Right. And it's also just, like, it's real life for people, right? It's not, like, a lot of this is abstract in theory, but then Mickey Kendall talks about this a lot where it's, like, sure, can we get, like, women to be CEOs and companies or whatever, but how does that affect black women who are trying to provide for their family, like, in communities and neighborhoods where that is really difficult? How does, a how does like, a white lady becoming the CEO of Facebook tangibly actually, like, help marginalized communities? You know what I mean? Someone becomes a CEO. There's it's a hashtag girl boss, but like, how is that actually like helping people? Especially if a lot of the times those companies then reproduce harmful practices. So it's thinking like practically and pragmatically about like what is actually 
working for people on the ground, I guess, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know. Um, but it's good, though, right? This discomfort <laughs> and this grappling is yes. important. And this is a topic that should make everyone uncomfortable. And it this is right, the hard part like, is like, it's so easy for me to just be like, well, that was hard. I got, I don't know, kind of. <laughs> Um, scolded for some of the things I said and then other people were supportive of it. I don't know. Maybe this is too messy and I should just stay out of it, right? That's the easy approach. But I know that's not the right approach and I know it won't make me feel good. Right, and I think like... I'm doing it again. I'm talking about my feelings. This is so messed up. (laughs) Okay, it is... Sarah, it is okay for you to have feelings. (laughs) And like, I think I told you this (laughs) yesterday or even like this podcast is a work... And this is like an important distinction, not in progress. It's a work of progress. It's a work of process and it's a work of progress. So you work things out. And I think it is, I think it is to do some, to do stuff like this publicly, like is not easy. We're considering that our audience is white women who I think most of our audience is very similar demographically to us, right? I guess then I'm trying to appeal to the people who are stuck in the in-between. If I'm having a hard time speaking about this and I have made a habit of putting myself out there, then I just feel like the people who are stuck in between are feeling undecided about not Black Lives Matter so much, though. I'm still thinking about the abolish the police. Like I'm having a really hard time. Just like the whole thing. I keep separating the two. Yeah. And I need I get to start it. thinking of them as well, and I think congruent. Showing empathy and compassion to your audience and also not underestimating their intelligence and not underestimating their capacity for knowledge is important, right? And we're not saying, like, I'm not going into this being like, I think this this and this and like listen and if you don't think so then you're like a bad person like that's not how this works (laughs) it's like here are here are things that are difficult and we're having a conversation as friends about it and like maybe for some people this is the converse like they are not able to have this conversation in real life with other people and so like this is how that it can be worked out for them you know Mm mm-hmm well, and I'm always wary of extremes, so I just, I guess I want to say that, mm-hmm. that I am in this in-between place because I'm much more comfortable with incremental change than drastic change. Sure. And so, yep, I, I like keep, you know, teetering back and forth where I'm like, of course I want more money for our schools and our healthcare system and for social workers. That's so important to me. But then at the same time... I keep thinking about like, well, how can we use the current police system as a vehicle to do that? And that's not in line with the messaging either. And so I'm just, (laughs) from a practical standpoint, the thing that frustrated me the most about the conversation was the police unions are very powerful, very strong. And when I asked Mm -hmm. this organizing group, like, what do you think about that? How are you going to combat the police union? They said, oh, we don't really yep. actually know a lot about police unions. And that was when I think I I checked out. So they checked out. I checked out. Yeah. But I think, I don't know. I think it was still like, I think it had value because that is what it is, right? It's like these conversations. Yeah. 
a lot of these organizations who are focused on stuff like this, hey, this is a very new organization, right? Like, it's as old, it's a month old. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of them are fairly decentralized or like are community run. So like, I don't know what their position is as far as like leadership and research goes. You know what I mean? Mm I just thought they would have more of an institutional understanding, not just of the police, yes. but of the city of Worcester. Right. That's fair. And that's some bias I bring to this conversation. I'm always like, oh, the Clarkies, like they think they could just come in here yeah. and change everything. And, the, and I mean, Clark has been so good to this community. They send kids from that neighborhood through their mm-hmm. programs for free. You know, it's like, yeah, they're very, very yeah. supportive of Worcester I sometimes just like get turned off by the idealism in the same way that I get turned off by extremes on the other end you know so that's where I was wavering to last night I was listening to the meeting and somebody called in and was like we need to diversify the city council and I can't believe the city of Worcester has appointed all these people who are so homogenous. And I'm like, dude, that's not like we elected those people. That's not how it works. No one appointed them. Like, well, yeah, but then that goes back to the, yeah, but that goes back to that conversation we had last week about the accessibility of that position too, right? Oh, totally. But I just, a lot of people don't know this stuff, but that's not what this guy was seeing. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I know, so I get frustrated when people haven't done their homework and they're, like, so bombastic, but they, like, don't understand how the structure works so that they can actually affect change. Sure. Yeah, I get that. I get that totally. It's really easy to be like, you suck, you suck, you suck. But it's another thing to, like, have some sort of practical plan. Yeah. Or actionable steps. Right. But I guess I just think, like, there are probably pe- – I don't want I, – I guess that my argument would just be, like, I wouldn't use that conversation as, like, a as like a total representation of the defund organization. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, my own, my own brother is very involved in it, you know? It's like – Right. And yeah. I guess that that is, like, my point. Not that – like, oh, it's fine that they came and didn't know this stuff. It's more just like, I don't think that, I don't know that we should necessarily use that particular thing as, as our benchmark. So there's a really famous Audre Lorde quote that is perpetuated a lot in like leftist and progressive communities that is the, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And, and she even elaborates further. She says, they may allow us to temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. So, like, there are larger movements that are also radical and big within, like, within a lot of leftist communities that even look to, like, electoralism not solving our problems. And so I do think that... I do think that for some folks who are interested in bringing about this kind of change, they are not interested necessarily in the idea of, like, just doing that. Maybe part partly accomplishing that by doing this, but not just doing that by, like, getting someone that they agree with on the city council. That's still the, the you know, the master's house. That's still the, the institution that's from some people's perspective, not mine necessarily, is, like, causing, is, like, part of the root of the problem. 
So there may be that view. And I don't think that that's the case necessarily for like what happened in our conversation, but I do think that that's the case. That is a principle that many organizations who are interested in radical change follow would be how I would explain that. Well, here are my takeaways. The only, I just. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I was thinking about what you said before about how you're just troubled by like the like, yes, I want to put money in education and healthcare and social work and that stuff. But then how can we do that within like the framework of the current, of current policing, right? That's like a big thing that you're struggling with. And all I, I just want to like rhetorically is something to think about. It's almost like an exercise. And this is like, not just for you, it's for everyone. Think about how that system would, would continue to uphold the status quo. That's sort of like a, a brain exercise is like, how do the systems that we have, no matter what they are, what, in what ways do they contribute to like negative or perceived negative aspects of the status quo? It was a response that I got from a friend as well who said, we've tried incremental reform over and over Mm -hmm. and over and people are still senselessly dying. And so it's a slap in the face or like a failure to acknowledge that terrible history every time you say that, Sarah. And I was like, oh, shit. Because that's not my intent. But I guess walking away from this, when I talk about race, particularly with my feminist hat on, I want to stop centering my white feelings so much and listen more. I will continue to read and listen to podcasts and do my research. And I do fully say I would love for there to be more of an investment in education and healthcare. I would love for it to be easier to, in the situation where you come across somebody, rather than calling 911, know how to call the specialized response team for any given mental health issue. You know, I want that to become the norm. So that's where I'm at right now. (laughs) 